I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Exodus 14. Hopefully this choice of text isn't too strange for you. I'll remind you, last year we looked at Genesis 3 and the flaming sword that cut off humanity from the garden, but how that same sword struck Christ so that his people might enter into the presence of God. Well, it's another Easter morning and we're back in the Pentateuch. This time in Exodus 14, looking specifically at the Red Sea event. I hope you'll agree with me that it's an appropriate text for the day. It's a text that describes the greatest redemptive event in all of Scripture prior to the Lord's incarnation. You remember how the Exodus began? It it begins by God remembering the covenant promises He'd made. The promise that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman. The promise to Abraham that through his line and offspring all the families of the earth would be blessed. The promise that the children of Abraham would be in captivity for 400 years but would return home to the promised land. That's how Exodus opens. With God remembering His covenant, and then coming to his people through his chosen mediator, Moses. And through Moses, God redeems his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In an Exodus event, we always see both judgment and salvation. Prior to today's text, there are those ten familiar plagues, which would be judgment. And yet there's also salvation. That even on the night when the firstborn of of Egypt perish, even on that night there's salvation for the people of God through the blood of spotless lambs. Divine redemption always includes both judgment and salvation. And in our text today, we'll see this come to a climactic, epic end. An end where the true king, through the very same waters, will crush his enemies in the flood while also delivering his people. And hopefully, as we consider the first exodus, we will also more clearly see the greater exodus that God worked through his chosen mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and then read our text. Heavenly Father, as your son prayed, sanctify your People in the truth. Your word is truth. May it find fertile ground in the hearts of your people this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 14. I'm going to, uh, 
At first, I thought I was going to do just verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahareth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and the horsemen of his army and overtook them and camped by the sea by Pi-Hareth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without uh, one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. 
and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Yeah, this scene of the nation of Israel, this roughly two million souls there on the shore of the sea is one that would be remembered and celebrated in perpetuity. Recalling again and again in their minds God's mighty act of salvation. And the Psalms are a great example of this. There's a portion in Psalm 77 that reads... When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's an event God's people never forgot. How the God of their fathers redeemed them out of Egypt. And you know one of the most important questions that must be asked when talking about the Exodus. It's very simple. Who is the ruler of this people? Who is their king? Is it Pharaoh? Or is it the Lord God? That's the question that's in the background. And it's the question that is decisively answered at this body of water. As is his habit, God tells his mediator exactly what will take place. And we see this in... Verse 3, Pharaoh will say, 
They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Pharaoh will think, I have the strategic advantage. They're vulnerable, camped between a tower and the sea. Now is the time to strike. But God has a purpose. He always does. And he tells that purpose in verse 4. Pharaoh will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I will be glorified in my judgment of Pharaoh. And then you jump ahead to verse 13 and you see the grand words that really brought this text to my mind a couple months ago as as an Easter sermon text. Moses says to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And those are rousing words. Those are inspiring words, comforting words. And we see here the definition of salvation. God will fight for you. He will work this. He will do what you are unable to do on your own. And yet there's a call to action. The people are whining and faithless and saying it would be better to die in Egypt. And he says, why do you cry to me? Tell them to go forward. Go down to the edge of the water. Trust my promises and be ready. And then as you scan the remainder of the passage, what's highlighted are the things that God does. Verse 21, the Lord drove back the sea. Verse 24, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic. Verse 27, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And finally, verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day. Who is the one orchestrating and accomplishing this plan of redemption? It's the Lord. Who is it that brings judgment? On the enemies of God, the Lord. Who is it who safely brings his people through and saves them and delivers them so that they pass from death to life? It's the Lord. I want to look at verse 31, but we're going to come back to it in a little bit. I'd like to zoom way out and think of Scripture in total. God's revelation to us is progressive. And I don't mean progressive as common parlance today would think of progressive. But by saying God's revelation is progressive, I mean that what God revealed at one point in history may undergo development and further revelation. The scriptures aren't just an anthology of Hebrew literature. It's a collection of authors who write in their own way 
who are yet together telling one great story. And as this story unfolds, it progresses. God expands it. He clarifies it. And more and more, we learn who He is. And more and more, we learn how He will deal with the curse brought about by the fall. More and more, we'll see how He will restore all of creation. All of this becomes clearer in scriptures over time. So let's take Exodus 14 as an example. We read this text this morning, and as you read on in the rest of scripture, you'll notice things of this progressive nature. You'll notice things like the author of Hebrews referring to the Lord Jesus as one worthy of more glory than Moses. We'll read of the simple, humble beginning of Jesus. We we did this three or four months ago, right? Back during the season of Advent and Christmas. We we read of this and, and how shortly after his birth, his parents had to flee with him. Where did they go? To Egypt. Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill the words of the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now those words originally referred to the children of Israel. But would progress to refer to the greater son. Then there's the transfiguration. Oh, this is really cool. That great event that was recorded In three of the four Gospels, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up on a high mountain. And Jesus is transfigured before them. His glory is revealed. His clothes become radiant, dazzling white. And and then we're told that the disciples see two men talking with Jesus. Who were they? Moses and Elijah. What did they talk about, I wonder? Well, in Luke chapter 9... It's recorded that Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus and spoke of his departure. Now, maybe you have a footnote in your Bible that can and help you there. You may not know the, the Greek word that Luke uses that we translate as departure. You know the word? It would be exodus. Moses and Elijah appear in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. No doubt they spoke of his exodus and spoke of the judgment and deliverance that would be accomplished through it. Judgment against sin and deliverance for those in bondage to sin. They spoke of the chains of Satan being broken and the people of God being delivered that they might live and worship their God in spirit and in truth. No doubt they discussed that just as God was glorified at Pharaoh's expense, the same but only to a greater degree would be accomplished at the cross. The ancient serpent, that great enemy to the household of God, 
like Pharaoh, would spot the Son of God in a seemingly vulnerable position. He appeared trapped. He allowed himself to be betrayed and arrested and handed over and stripped and beaten and nailed to a cross. Bumbling, careless fool, Satan must have thought. Let's end this. Let's press our advantage. There is no pillar of cloud to provide protection now as there had been before. There's nothing standing between me and the Christ. The Father has turned his face away. Push forward. Push forward and drive the vulnerable Christ into the sea of death. And the Christ would die. Not as a moral example for you and me. Not as a martyr for a cause. But as the recipient of divine judgment. Remember, in the Exodus there is both salvation and judgment. And just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Christ would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He would taste death. The words spoken by Jonah could be spoken by Christ. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. (coughs) The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. But in this greater exodus, just as in the first, God the Father would be glorified. He would get glory through the defeat of his enemies and through the salvation of his people. He would raise the Son to life on the third day. He would bring Him through the waters of judgment and death and land Him safely alive on the other side. Again, to echo Jonah, I went down into the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's why we're here this morning. Because the Lord Jesus did not remain slain. Drowned under the billows of judgment. He was delivered from the depths of the grave by the hand of his father and resurrected to new life. And just as this exodus event disarmed Pharaoh and his proud host were utterly destroyed... The same has been done to the enemies of the household of God. Paul writes, Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, Christ put them to open shame by triumphing over them by the cross. This is how redemption was accomplished. But how is it applied? This is what you might be asking. How is this redemption applied to you 
and to me? And the answer is found in our union with Christ. Have you ever read through your New Testament and seen the phrase, in Christ? If you'll go through and count the number of times that phrase appears in Paul's letters alone, you'll count 216 times. Paul will say, in Christ. In John's letters, you'll find it 26 times. This doctrine of union with Christ, being in Christ, must be a central truth to the doctrine of salvation. And it tells us how this redemption that Christ accomplished is applied to us. A definition might be helpful. Union with Christ refers to the believer's solidarity or association with Christ by the Holy Spirit, through faith, by virtue of which believers partake in his saving benefits. That's Dr. Richard Gaffin's definition. I'll read it one more time. Union with Christ refers to the believer's solidarity or association with Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith by virtue of which believers partake of his saving benefits. The believer is united to Christ. Communion has been restored. And this union extends not only to their present possession of salvation, but also in its past, once-for-all accomplishment. In, in, in their election before the foundation of the world and in their still future glorification, his people are forever united to him. And this union is spiritual. It's spiritual because of the work of the Spirit in the believer. This is why Paul, have you ever wondered why Paul can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's speaking of union with Christ. And it's not only through the Spirit, but also through faith. Through the believers opening empty hands and receiving and resting upon Christ alone for their salvation. So what does this mean? If we are in union with Him, it means that His Red Sea experience is ours. He passed through the walls of death and came out victorious on the other side. And His exodus has become ours. Is that not what Paul is speaking of? Romans 6, I want to read 11 verses to you. I'll read them quickly. You've heard these before. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore by, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. How in the world do you understand that passage apart from union with Christ? His exodus has become our exodus. By the working of the Spirit and by faith. The judgment he suffered was our judgment. The death he died, we died with him. Because he rose from the grave, we will rise also. His redemption is our redemption. These are the saving benefits we partake in by virtue of our union with him. See the Lord. Passing into the waters of judgment, dying, and then being raised from the grave to everlasting life. And see your name written on those nail-pierced hands. By the work of God, your soul has been indelibly linked to His, so that His exodus is also yours. He'll speak of this. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. What does he say? He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Molly was helping me yesterday. She's read a book and she was mentioning um, some quotes that could be helpful. And I've got, got one for you. This is from an author named Chad Bird in his book, The Christ Key. He says this, quote, His, this is Jesus, His saving exodus was to happen in the holy city in which He would draw all people to Himself on the cross. Bring all His own with himself into death and the grave and raise all his own with himself by the Father into life again. The climactic events of world history, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and the resurrection are the gospel exodus of God for us. End quote. I hope you can see why this day of resurrection is so glorious. Because He lives, we live. He will bring all His people safely through the waters of death and deliver them safely on the other side. Now let's go back to verse 31 of Exodus 14. If God has done all this, What did the Israelites do? What are we to do? 
Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and then believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. Don't forget this order of salvation. God takes the initiative. His saving work comes first. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And then comes our response. Fear the Lord. Believe in Him and in His Christ, who is the greater Moses. I found a quote from David Strain on fearing the Lord. David is the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. And he says this, Fearing the Lord. It is to tremble before Him, recognizing His majesty, His sovereignty, recognizing If he does not act to rescue you, you will not be rescued. It is to tremble in reverent awe and to cast yourself completely, all your hope, all your confidence, all your trust, all your faith on Jesus Christ. End quote. That's our response. That's our response to this awesome work of salvation. I'd like to close with a prayer that I I found. Um, And it's entitled, O God of my Exodus. Would you pray with me? Great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the power of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave, free and triumphant over sin Satan and death. Show me herein the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted. That the claims of justice are satisfied. That the devil's scepter is shivered. That his wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died. In him I rose. In his life I live. In his victory I triumph. In his ascension, I shall be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, thou who wast lifted up upon a cross, art ascended to highest heaven. Thou who as man of sorrows was crowned with thorns, now art as Lord of life, wreathed with glory. Once no shame more deep than thine, no agony more bitter No death more cruel. Now, no exalted more high. No life more glorious. No advocate more effective. Thou art in the triumph car, leading captive thine enemies behind thee. What more could be done than thou hast done? Thy death is my life. Thy resurrection, my peace. Thy ascension, my hope. 
Thy prayers, my comfort. Amen. Would you stand and join me in singing? Let's sing as those standing safely upon the dry land, looking back and beholding the glorious work of redemption worked by God, remembering our baptism, that we've been cleansed from former sins and brought from death to life. Would you stand and join me in singing your uh, bulletin insert?